To Luke chapter 23, we turn our attention this morning on this uh, second Sunday of Lent. Luke chapter 23, in the Lord's kind providence, we started our studies in Luke's gospel during Advent, uh, during the weeks leading up to Christmas in 2010. And now here, during the Lenten season of 2013, we find ourselves at Calvary. For that is what this place is called, to which Luke invites us today, to Golgotha, as it was called in the Hebrew, the skull in Greek, to Calvaria in the Latin, hence our modern English word for the place of our Lord's execution, Calvary. It's widely believed that Jesus died on a hill just outside of Jerusalem, uh, It certainly was uh, outside, just outside of Jerusalem that he died, that it was on a hill we conjecture from the name of the place, deducing the shape of the landscape from our imaginations of the skull. It's a conjecture that has become institutionalized in the Christian mind. We sing even in one of our hymns of the green hill far away on which our Savior died. Like that hymn, Luke's telling of this history is very plain and very artless. It's a simple recollection with few words of the greatest event in all of world history. The supreme sacrifice of the divine by the divine for the salvation of mankind, even us. Heaven or hell was decided during these few hours, told with such brevity in the Gospels. Brothers and sisters, we're stepping on the hallowed ground here. Let's pray. Father, we, we ask that you will transport us back to, to these wonderful and terrible events this day of our salvation. Let us grasp, Father, we pray something of the outskirts of words like, there they crucified him. In ways, Father, that words alone cannot possibly convey, but your spirit most certainly can. And to our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine saying, If you are the king 
of the Jews. Save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. The public execution of a king is a solemn matter and very different in some important ways from the execution of a common criminal. Whether one favored a king or hated him, the sight of royalty ascending the platform and submitting to the instrument of death leaves a deep and abiding image on one's mind. There's something something terribly incongruous about it, something that just doesn't fit. It's not right somehow that a king should be executed. One thinks, for example, of the execution of the only French king ever to be executed, Louis the 16th, without whom it's doubtful that we would even call ourselves the United States of America today. Had it not been for his military assistance, we might still be a colony of England to this day. French Calvinists and Lutherans and Jews also owe Louis Capet their gratitude for his benevolent treatment of them, for lifting the uh, intolerance for them that existed in his nation Uh, Intolerance for anyone but uh, Roman Catholics, or intolerance for anyone but Roman Catholics. But there was no place for him, for Louis XVI in post-revolution France. And so in January 1793, he was humiliatingly put to death, as as is described in this letter from Philippe Penel. I doubt not that the king's death will be described in different ways as the partisan spirit dictates and that garbled versions of this great event will appear in the newspapers and be noised abroad in such a manner as to distort the truth. As an eyewitness who has always been far removed from the prejudice of parties and who is but too well acquainted with the worthlessness of the aura popularis, I am going to give you a faithful account of what happened. I write to you now with my heart filled with grief and my whole being stunned by the shock of this dreadful experience. Louis, who fortified by the principles of religion, seemed completely resigned to meet death, left his prison in the temple about nine in the morning and was taken to the place of execution in the mayor's carriage with his confessor and two gendarmes the curtains being drawn. When he arrived at his destination, he looked at the scaffold without flinching. The executioner at once proceeded to perform the customary rite by cutting off the king's hair, which he put in his pocket. Louis then walked up onto the scaffold. The air was filled with the roll of numerous drums seemingly intended to prevent the people from demanding grace. The drum beats were hushed for a moment by a gesture from Louis himself, but a signal from the adjutant of the general of the National Guard uh, at that signal, they recommenced with such force that Louis's voice was drowned and it was only possible to catch a few stray words like, I forgive my enemies. At the same time, he took a few steps round the fatal plank to which he was drawn by a feeling of horror natural to any man on the brink 
of death. Or maybe he conceived that people might appeal for, it, for grace. For what man does not cling to hope even in his last moments? The adjutant ordered the executioner to do his duty. And in a trice, Louis was fastened onto the deadly plank of the machine they call the guillotine. And his head was cut off so quickly that he could hardly have suffered. This, at least, is a merit belonging to the murderous instrument which bears the name of the doctor who invented it. The executioner immediately lifted the head from the sack into which it fell automatically and displayed it to the people. As soon as the execution had taken place, the expression on the faces of many spectators changed and From having worn an air of somber consternation, they shifted to another mood and fell to crying, Viva la nation! Some of the citizens followed suit, but a great number withdrew, and their spirits racked with pain to shed tears in the bosom of their families. As decapitation could not be performed without spilling blood, On the scaffold, many persons hurried to the spot to dip the end of their handkerchief or a piece of paper in it to have a reminder of this memorable event. Well, if the execution of a French king makes for a deep impression, what about the execution of the king of kings? For that is what Jesus was and is. He is the king. Pilate didn't understand that fact when he ordered that placard put over the top of Jesus' head on the cross to read, King of the Jews. He was ignorant of the fact that he was executing not only the true king of the Jews, but the true king of the world as well. The placard was really intended, we imagine, to describe the crime of, uh, or we understand, to describe the crime of a man nailed to the cross under it, the reason for which he was being executed. Now, to the common passerby, the designation of the day would have tended to indicate that Jesus was being executed for a crime against Rome, uh, a crime that ostensibly consisted of his having set him up, himself up as a king as opposed to Caesar. The more religiously astute among them, however, would have understood and would have been clearer to them that this was really just Pilate getting his grim revenge against the Jewish leaders who had hounded him and even intimidated him into crucifying this man whom he had openly and repeatedly declared innocent. Here is your king, Pilate was effectively saying to the Jewish leaders, who we know from another gospel insisted that the recalcitrant Pilate change that sign to read, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Now to those with spiritual eyes to see it, it is plain that that placard above Jesus' head was really just plain true. 
Jesus was the king of the Jews. The sign was exactly right. In fact, Jesus was just plain capital K king. He went to the cross as the king. And all of the things, of all of the things that could be said about this text, and even the greater the number of things that could be thought about this text, for that is what John Calvin said ought to be done with this text, that it ought to be meditated upon even more than spoken about. I say the fact that this was the execution of the king arrests our hearts this morning, in particular the ironies of the cross, that despite all appearances to the contrary, this is the execution not only of a king, but of the king. This grisly spectacle, this man beaten to within inches of his life, flesh torn, crown of thorns pressed onto his brow, now dangling above the ground, suspended by nails in his hands and in his feet, with blood running down his face and down his body and dripping off of his feet. This is the royal potentate of the world, of the universe. As the pastor poet John Ellerton captures it well in a single line, throned upon the awful tree. Here we see, despite all appearances, our king in nobility, in love, in power, our valiant king. First look on your noble king, Christian, on his nobility. Though hidden here, of course, not apparent, I know, many earthly kings derive their nobility, don't they, from their surroundings, from their royal clothing, from the throne on which they sit, from the scepter in their hand, from the courtiers who wait upon them. Jesus has none of these, none of them. He has not even a shred, not a stitch of clothing. We forget that because of the artwork that almost universally covers Jesus' nakedness on the cross. But all of that artwork is wrong. Jesus was stripped of everything. Even the royal hand-me-downs that the soldiers had draped over Jesus' bloodied back, they had now ripped from him and exposed. Again, Jesus was utterly and completely for all the world to look upon his nakedness. He was utterly humiliated on the cross. That's something we often forget and overlook. Corey Ten Boom writes in her book, The Hiding Place, about her experiences in the Nazi concentration camp at Ravensbrück. I had read a thousand times the story of Jesus' arrest, she writes, how soldiers had slapped him, laughed at him, flogged him. Now such happenings had faces. 
and voices. Fridays. The recurrent humiliation of medical inspection. We had to maintain our erect hands at sides position as we filed slowly past a phalanx of grinning guards. How there could have been any pleasure in the sight of those stick-thin legs and hunger-bloated stomachs, I could not imagine, nor could I see the necessity for the complete undressing. But it was one of those mornings while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, and yet another passage in the Bible leapt into life for me. He hung naked on the cross. The paintings, the carved crucifixes showed at least a scrap of cloth, but this I suddenly knew was the respect and reverence of the artist. But oh, at the time itself, on that other Friday morning, there had been no reverence, no more than I saw in the faces of these guards. I leaned toward Betsy ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blades stood out sharp and thin beneath her blue mottled skin. Betsy, they took his clothes too. Ahead of me I heard a little gasp. Oh, Corey, and I never thanked him. Jesus was utterly naked on that cross, but that was not the only ignominy he suffered. He was hung between two criminals, and so as the prophet Isaiah has it, was numbered among the transgressors. Maybe this too was a cruel sort of jab from Pilate to the Jewish leaders. Look at your king, no better than a couple of thieves. Even the sour wine offered him by the guards, in verse 36, is degrading, reminiscent of Psalm 69, verse 21, where the gift of vinegar was an insult. They provide him a beverage befitting their true evaluation of his status. Cheap wine, a burlesque gift for a carnival king. Could go on and spend the rest of the morning this morning describing the ignominy, the humiliation, the shame of the cross that all could see that day with the eyes in their heads. But we don't look at Jesus on the cross with physical eye only, but with the spiritual eye. And looking back on those terrible events, those terrible hours, we see through the shame of it all the abiding. Nobility, the royalty, the dignity of our king. Hidden for a time, covered over to be sure. Even set aside for a time to follow the Apostle Paul's logic. Here we see the king of glory willingly submitting himself to shame. Why? To save you. 
to save you. He is submitting himself to all of this to spare you the hell, the everlasting punishment for your sin. He takes it all on himself in these hellish hours on the cross without complaining, without whining. The cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Second, look on your loving King Christian. This, this too is set in bold relief against the background of the cruelty of the cross and of the hatred being spewed out upon him by the soldiers and by the Jewish leaders. They actually took pleasure in nailing him to the cross. These sadistic guards who drove the nails through his plans, through his hands with pleasure, who gambled in cold blood right in the sight of the dying man for his clothes, for his underwear, who mocked him as the Jewish leaders scoffed. They heard it from his very lips. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Never once, even as the the sinews of his body were tearing inside of him and the sun was scorching and baking his exposed skin as the thirst raged and his head pounded and the blood ran from his body and the tissue swelled around the, the nails and insult was added to injury. Not for one second did he fail to love them. To love those who had nailed him to that Roman gibbet. He prays for them. He prays for their forgiveness. What wondrous love is this to the very end, he thinks, not of himself, but of others. And not only of others, but of his enemies. It is a love, my brothers and sisters, the love that has found out you. The love that laid down his life to give you life. The love, dear flock, that must also pulsate in your heart now for others. Like king, like subject. We are citizens of this kingdom of love. Remember his instructions and heed his voice. I say to you, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If this is the kind of love we're to have for our enemies, then what kind of love must we have for our brothers and our sisters in Christ, for one another right here in this sanctuary? Third, Christians, look on your powerful king. For this, too, you will need the eyes of faith, the eyes that the soldiers did not have, that the rulers did not have, who scoffed, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. You notice how cowardly they are about this. They won't speak to Jesus. They scoff him by speaking to each other. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the mocking soldiers, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. 
To their minds, he was no king. And the fact that he remained on the cross was only confirmation of his weakness. All they saw was a worm, not even a man, not certainly a king. What kind of king, with what kind of power is this who remains nailed to a cross? What they implied here in Luke According to Matthew and Mark, they said, he cannot save himself. And in a sense, they were right. They were also terribly wrong. It was not weakness that kept him on the cross. It was strength. He knew full well that with a simple appeal to his father, 12 legions of angels would have been dispatched to his rescue. Now, my brothers and sisters, what kept him to the na- nail to the cross was the power of his love, of his love for those for whom he was sacrificing himself, voluntarily surrendering himself to fathomless agonies as our substitute, in our place. Remember that this lamb led silent to his death also just happens to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. Maybe you remember the scene. Children, you remember this from the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Edmund has sinned, and now the great lion, Aslan, king of the whole wood, has a work to do to save him. And into the hands of his enemies, the great lion walks and surrenders himself and allows them to bind him and tighten the cords to the point where they cut him. He offers no resistance as the evil creatures shouting and cheering and jeering around him roll him over and bind his four paws, just one of which in a single stroke would have wiped them out. He lets them shave his great golden mane. Why, he's only a great cat after all, cried one. Is that what we're afraid of? added another. And they surged round Aslan, jeering at him, saying things like, How many mice have you caught today, cat? And would you like a saucer of milk? When once Aslan had been tied to the stone table, the witch bared her arms, and then she began to wet her knife. And just before she gave the blow, she stooped down, And said in her quivering voice, And now who has won? It doesn't take much of a stretch of the imagination to see Satan wetting his lips at Calvary. Even he thought such a fool as he is at a moment of Jesus is weak. But as a matter of fact, he was all that while 
Jesus was, in fact, triumphing on the cross. By the cross. By the strength exercised not to get off of it, but to stay on it. To suffer. If you think his physical suffering was the, phys- was the real suffering and the jeering, think again. To suffer the wrath of God for your sins and for mine. Only a powerful king who has willingly given himself over to weakness can accomplish such a royal feat as this. Which leads me to the fourth and final point. Look, Christian, at your valiant king enthroned on the tree of Calvary. He went to his death with nobility in ignominy. With love in the face of hatred, with power willingly given over to weakness, and with valiance. How so? How valiant? Just this. Think about the temptation. Think about the, the, the terrible temptation he had to fight at the cross. Listen to them taunt him. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Does that sound familiar? Have you heard that before? If you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Who was at the cross? Satan was slithering his way through the crowd, whispering in their ears, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And don't you imagine for a minute that it was not tempting for Jesus. Terribly tempting. And, and remember, Jesus fought that temptation on the cross with nothing more than you and I have at our disposal for, for fighting temptation. Faith in his Father, the help of the Holy Spirit, his knowledge of the Scriptures, and prayer. And with the same tools at your disposal... He fought temptation completely. When every sinew of his body was screaming in searing pain, he was to the last, to the death, manfully fighting every single temptation. And not We could list those. But imagine this. He was fighting not only the temptations of commission, he was also fighting and winning over the temptations of omission. He did not fail for one second on the cross to love God with all of his heart, all of his soul, 
all of his mind, all of his strength, and his neighbor as himself. Every thought, every word. No king ever in the history of the world has fought as valiantly or as well as your king fought at that cross, at the skull, at Golgotha. To save you and to bring you into his kingdom and under his rule. We began this morning asking why Pilate put that placard up there, King of the Jews, over Jesus' head. The truth of the matter is this. God put it there. God placed it there as a sign for you and for me to read today, Jesus is King. If he is not your king today, then you must make him your king by bowing the knee to him, by trusting him, by following him, by seeking forgiveness from him in the way that was accomplished by him. The king of the Jews, the king of the world.